When you have great coaches, then after you have great coaches, you get great players. You have a great organization, and you tell them one thing. Just win, baby. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-founder of the Tulane Center for Sports. On this episode, I'm joined by Amy Trask, the former CEO of the Raiders, current analyst for CBS Sports, author of You Negotiate Like a Girl, and chairman of the board of the Big Three. Amy and I discussed the unique leadership style of Al Davis, her approach to negotiation and business relationships, the fractured but maybe healing relationship between the NFL and the NFL Players Association, and overcoming sexism and gender bias in the NFL. Here we go. Welcome, Amy Trask. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I, I want to start by talking about a little bit of what you discuss in, in your terrific book, You Negotiate Like a Girl. And not surprisingly, I want to talk a little bit about Al Davis and how Al Davis interacted with his fellow NFL owners and the commissioner and, and the league. And I think it's fair to say he had an adversarial relationship with the league and was involved in decades of litigation. As you know, some of that was because the Raiders and Al Davis were actually sued, so they were defendants in some of this litigation. But as you said, they countersued with gusto. I teach the Raiders relocation case as one of the fundamental courses in my sports law class. Then the USFL case, which the Raiders were not directly involved in other than as a defendant, but Al Davis testified against the NFL. So I have two parts to my question. One, what was your role in the legal department with the Raiders when you first arrived and how involved were you in the litigation itself? And, and then I'll ask you about how you talk to Al about these cases and how you tried to talk him out of some of these cases. Before I dive into that, I simply want to tell you thank you for noting that we were most often the defendant because I often feel like a five-year-old when people ask me about these lawsuits and I always immediately say, they started it. And I really do sound like a five-year-old. Mom, they started it. Uh, We were most often a defendant, but as you just noted, and as I've previously shared, Al did like to counterclaim with a vengeance. But I always sound like the five-year-old saying, we didn't start it. They started it, Mom. I joined the Raider organization after the litigation was already pending. When I joined as an intern, some of it was pending, but when I joined full-time a couple years after my internship, I went from intern to full-time employee with a very brief gap between those two. But for surely sure, by the time I started as a full-time employee, most of the litigation with the league was already pending, although there was additional litigation down the road. And I had varying roles. I was very young when I started, but certainly involved. People often ask me, uh, what is one of my proudest accomplishments with the Raiders? And I will tell you that the thing I feel, um, one of the things I feel the best about was convincing Al to allow me to settle all the litigation. So I started my career when it was pending. We didn't start it, mom. And I feel very good about the fact that I ultimately convinced him to allow me to settle it all. So you may not have started it all, or the team may not have started it all, but you do concede that he had a more adversarial approach than many. 
Of course. And yes, of course. And when I say mom, they started it. It's not in any way to shy away from the fact that he embraced the litigation and and fought ferociously, but more just to be the five-year-old I can often be. (laughs) But look, he was not scared of standing up for what he believed in. He believed in certain things very fiercely. I'm a beneficiary of the fact that he stood up for what he believed in, but that's a different issue and a different story. But it transcends his personality. and, And he was not shy about disagreeing with the league. While many people saw that adversarial relationship, they didn't see the warmth and and the uh, camaraderie behind the scenes. I will always remember that he and Pete Rosell were fierce adversaries in the courtroom. And yet when Pete stood up at that league owners meeting and announced that he was leaving, he was retiring, one of the first owners to stand up and physically embrace him and hug him was Al, even in the midst of all of this litigation. So yes, it was adversarial. You're absolutely right. But there were also lines um, drawn. There was adversarial relationship, but there was a common understanding and there was warmth between and among Al and many of the owners with whom he was adverse in litigation. Was he hugging him because he was happy he was leaving? It was a warm, genuine hug, recognizing that, look, we can be fierce adversaries in the courtroom, but I can also appreciate what we've both cared about so deeply for these years, which is the league itself. Did that carry through during the the time where Roselle was commissioner and again with the other owners? Because I think you'd use the analogy of the Ralphie Wolf and Sam Sheepdog, where they're fiercely fighting when they're fighting, but when they're not fighting, they're friendly and collegial. Was that what it was like? With some of the team owners, absolutely. With some in the league office, absolutely. I can tell you with respect to my relationship with the league office executives, with the owners of other teams, with executives at other teams, it was absolutely Ralph and Sam. Good morning. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Sam. And then we'd go about various matters on which we disagreed. But then at the end of the day, it was always, good night, Sam. Good night, Ralph. Maybe we'll get together with our spouses, Ralph and Sam. Al, yes, with some owners, no with some, but some of the stalwarts of the league, Dan Rooney, Lamar Hunt, Wellington, Mara, each of who, each of these men were just magnificently supportive and encouraging of me from the day I joined the league, also shared with me that while they wanted to just clobber Al in the courtroom, and they did not like the fact that Al was willing to litigate rather than compromise and settle things behind the scenes, did respect that he loved the league as they loved the league. They simply went about caring for and about the league very differently. Yeah. So on that note, I'm just, I'm always interested in sort of the origin story of people. We learn about them, we read about them when they're fully developed and and they have their MO and and their tactics and their strategies. Given Al Davis's approach as being a little more adversarial, a little more confrontational in a business where the owners are interdependent, right? They're partners in a lot of ways. It's a joint venture. And there is no league, at least the way we know it, unless each team is strong and at least they work together and they want to compete fiercely on the field, like they might in the courtroom, but off the field, they need to come together to create this valuable product, which makes every team more valuable. So if there were ever a situation where someone might want to be more collaborative rather than confrontational or adversarial, you would think it would be as an owner of an NFL team. But again, Al Davis took a different approach. Was there something in his, was it his background or it was just that he was so principled that he thought this was the best way to achieve his goals was by being confrontational or something else that 
led him to be more adversarial with his partners? You stated that beautifully. Fierce competitors on game day with respect to Al and some other team owners, fierce competitors in the courtroom, but business partners in every other regard. You really did state it uh, beautifully. People ask about the league. The league is a collection of 32 teams. When I started, 30 teams, I believe. I think I started after 28, but certainly there were 30. And people saw the outward facing issues, which was confrontation in the courtroom. But even while those cases were pending and there was fierce competition in the courtroom, there was collaboration on other matters. I remember years when that litigation was pending, when Al was very much a part of conference calls and meetings discussing matters of importance to all teams. Even while that litigation was pending, many owners looked to Al for his assistance with labor relations, with the players. So yes, competitors in many regards, and collaborators in other regards. And I want to take one moment and say that old expression, there's two sides to a coin. Al was absolutely willing to stand up for the courage of his convictions and to do what he believed, even when it required confrontation. And even when it wasn't popular for him to do, I'm a beneficiary of that. Al hired without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, or any other individuality, which has no bearing on whether someone can do a job decades and decades before others thought to do. And he was given some heat by people for some of the things he did. Well, I'm a beneficiary of his willingness to stand up for what he believed in. So did I agree with him on his confrontational approach on all business matters? Absolutely not. Did I disagree with him more than I agreed him with him? I sure did. But I also recognize that I was a beneficiary of his willingness to do what wasn't popular. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I don't think he gets enough credit, and I'm not sure why, for being more progressive and and being willing to make hires that weren't popular at the time for reasons other than football. As you said, not only you being the first and still only uh, CEO for an NFL team, but also obviously Archell and Tom Flores. And and so you've got not only race and gender, but also age. You were- Right. I was a kid. You were right. And which is pretty remarkable in a in a industry where people look to hire people that look like them and are the same age as them that that Al Davis did this. But a lot of that gets overshadowed by the the litigation and the Marcus Allen story, which I think most people have forgotten about, that there was a dispute between the Raiders and and one of the faces of the franchise and. The story, you could have an entire podcast on that and how he almost got traded to the Saints and how Bobby Hebert thought he was going to the Raiders and then the, the Marcus Allen lawsuit. And it's uh, and that's a, that, that's a podcast I could not help you on because I still to this day don't know the origins of that disagreement. It was super duper early in my career. I was sitting in my office on a, I think it was a Saturday. I don't remember the day. And I heard some raised voices and thought nothing of it because in football and in business in general, people should be able to raise their voices all the time. But it was the beginning of whatever occurred between those men. And I don't know what caused it. Uh, I do know I spent decades trying to convince Al to move on and fix it. And unfortunately, that didn't happen during his lifetime. But I couldn't help you on that podcast because I don't know what was the genesis of that argument. I'll get somebody else. Okay. Uh, So uh, on that note, when you first started with the Raiders and you had mentioned in, in, in your book that you were labeled in kindergarten, which is hard to believe that they labeled this in kindergarten, but as having behavioral problems and that you talk back to the kindergarten teachers and that you carried that spirit with you in some ways to when you were with the Raiders 
And early on, there was a, Al Davis got into a, a shouting match. And you said it, I think the phrase you used that it was like a velociraptor tearing into flesh. I don't know that I carried it with me. It's who I am. My okay. mom said to me as a little girl to thine own self, be true. And that was the best advice I've ever received. And a little embarrassing, but I didn't know until I was well into college that my mom didn't invent that. Shakespeare did. But that aside, look, I was labeled a behavior problem in kindergarten. And the fact that people label people, people shouldn't be labeled, let alone when they're in kindergarten. But that's a label that stuck with me all the way through high school. And many people would assert that it, it still applies now. And if it does, that's fine with me. I didn't carry it with me. It's who I am. But I think it's one of the reasons Al and I gelled and meshed as we did. You just referenced an argument we had roughly two weeks into my employment. And one of the, I would say perhaps the biggest misconception about Al is that he wouldn't tolerate disagreement or he wouldn't tolerate those who disagreed with him. Because if that was the case, I would have been fired about two weeks into my job. He was, he came into an office where I was sitting with a coworker and he ripped into that worker, just as you said, like a velociraptor into flesh is how I've described it. And I listened for a little bit and I realized he was wrong. Here I am two or so weeks into my job. And I said in my never dainty voice, excuse me, you're wrong. And his head spun around and I will never forget the expression on his face. What did you say? And I said, you're wrong. And I went on to explain that if the facts, if the information, if the data upon which he was basing his conclusion was accurate, then it was a fair conclusion. It would be a good conclusion if that data on which he was basing it was accurate. And I explained to him that the facts on which he was basing his conclusion were wrong. So his conclusion was wrong and he was wrong and he screamed and I screamed and he screamed and I screamed. And it went on for quite a while unbeknownst to me, people had gathered in the hallway to listen. And one woman even brought cartons because she figured I'd need to load my stuff up, even though I didn't really have any stuff. And after quite a while, he just looked at me and said, oh, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. And we went right on. And I think that set the tone for our almost 30-year working relationship. And what I would say to the the people in your classes, if you're going to argue, don't just argue for the sake of arguing. Bring your facts, bring your information, have grounds for your argument. As I said, I disagreed with Al over the course of my career more than I agreed with him, but I never disagreed just to be disagreeable, except maybe a couple of times when I was cranky. But I generally, I came with an argument. I also recognized at the end of the day, I didn't own the team, he did. So ultimately, whatever decision he made was my responsibility to effectuate as best I could. So the, the, to thine own self be true. And it's interesting. I, I say a lot of things to my kids. My kids are four and eight that they don't realize that I didn't say first. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be sad mm-hmm. when that, so don't, do you believe in miracles? Yes. They have no idea that I've stolen that. They think, wow, dad is so smart. These inspirational things he says to us, but on to thine own self be true. You were, as you said, you didn't carry it with you. It's just who you were, that you were willing to stand up to somebody. And if they were wrong, you would present the facts to them to show why they were wrong and and you wouldn't back down or you didn't back down, particularly early on in your job, which is pretty impressive. But for those who don't have that in them or that's not how they are, and you can think about when I teach my negotiation class, there are people who are uh, more inclined to be confrontational or competitive in a negotiation or a conflict. And there are others who are more um, inclined to be collaborative or to avoid. And there are pros and cons to both. And it's not suggesting you can't act another way, but there are people who enjoy the fight 
like you said, because it's just it's part of the fight. And then when they're done, they say, oh, that was so fun. That was a great fight. And now let's go have drinks together. That wasn't me, which is why I left litigation pretty early on. So what do you say to people who are not like that, who are faced with someone who likes to yell and to shout? How do, how well, do people work together? I'm going to draw a very big distinction between negotiations and between the sort of arguments I had with Al on business decisions. I am not at all combative in a negotiation. I am incredibly collaborative in a negotiation. I don't believe negotiations are games. And as you just noted, so many people go into a negotiation thinking, I'm going to just win this. I hate the expression, let's sit across the table from one another and negotiate. No, let's sit side by side and collaborate. Because if the goal is to make a deal, let's figure out how to make a deal. I don't need to win a negotiation. I need to see if I can strike a deal on terms that are acceptable to me. And if there's a term you want that I don't care about, you know what? I'm not going to make you fight for it. I'm going to give it to you. So I draw a big distinction between negotiating and trying to convince someone of a business decision in another context. But to answer your question, and the reason I drew that distinction is people will have different methods and different manners and different ways of going about things in business decisions, in negotiations, in arguments, to thine own self be true. The biggest blunders I have ever made, my only regrets have been when I have tried to be something I'm not, when I've tried to pretend I'm something I'm not, when I've tried to pretend I'm someone I'm not. Figure out what works for you and be you. I can only tell you with every bit of oomph I have that my biggest blunders when I, I have been when I have not been true to myself. That's great advice. And I share your negotiation philosophy. And when I teach my course, the first thing I do is make my students say, we will not use opponent when discussing a negotiation. We will use the term counterpart. And think about this as problem solving where you're collaborating. You're not, again, trying to win or lose. I love that because if the goal is to reach an agreement, then see if you can reach an agreement. And if you want three things that I don't give a darn about, I'm going to give them to you because I don't care. And similarly, I'm going to say to you, hey, if you don't care about this and this, they're important to me. And then you just carve everything away that you could have any sort of a disagreement of that doesn't matter. And you hone it down to the few things where maybe you both want them and you have to see if there's a way to compromise. I agree. I think there's the, the competitor versus collaborator versus avoider is more generally conflict resolution. So whether it's a conflict in a negotiation or a conflict in the workplace or just a, a disagreement, there's some people who are more inclined to fight because they want to win and more pe- people are more inclined to avoid because they don't like the confrontation. I'm neither. It's not yeah. that I, I don't think you should fight to win in a business sentence. Yeah. I never avoid confrontation. I think the middle is Let's just figure this out. Smart yeah. people know how to solve problems. I think there's a middle tranche there. Oh, there definitely is. There's definitely a middle where you can have a little bit of each and you take the best from all categories. At The Athletic, you wrote a piece about the change in the relationship between the league and the Players Association after D. Smith took over. And just reminds me of, of your, your point there was that every issue became an argument. And I, I think there's no question, and I think D would concede this, that part of it is because D is a litigator. And when you are a litigator, everything looks like a trial, just like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think part of it is that the players wanted someone who was like that, who wanted 
who's going to fight. And that, so they hired someone who's going to be a fighter. If you could sit Roger and D in a room or the owners and the players association to say, look, there's a lack of trust. It's been going on for a long time now, but it's counterproductive. We know players association, you have to fight for the players. Commissioner, you have to fight for the owners. How do you fix the, the broken or the, the damaged relationship that exists? Well, I think, in fact, the virus issues have gone a long way to helping repair that relationship because you are absolutely right. My experience in the league was, with D was an argument over everything. There'd be an argument if you were, you know, in a meeting taking notes. Why are you using a number two pencil? Why aren't you using a pen? It was an argument over everything. And look, I do respect the fact that whoever is in charge of the Players Association has a very important job to do, which is representing those players. But I don't think it needs to be done in a combative manner every single moment because I don't think that's productive. But I'm not in any way negating the fact that players need tremendous representation. The virus has gone a long way to helping that relationship because both the Players Association and the league are faced with challenges. None of us, and I shouldn't say none of us, I don't speak for other people, I certainly didn't envision these virus-related challenges being one to a football league. I was in the league right after 9-11, and I do remember those challenges and restarting playing, but never did I dream of these sort of virus challenges. And you know what? They've, they've I don't know whether I want to say caused or forced or enabled or helped or pushed the Players Association and the league to figure out how to collaborate because there's a common enemy right now, and that's the virus. Maybe there's, that could maybe be one little silver lining, which is it has improved the relationship. And I think there has been far greater collaboration. We will see when we're through this, if that lasts. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it's it's the survival of the league. Everybody has to think about their business in a different way. And it's interesting. I hadn't thought about them coming closer together because of this common enemy, as you put it. But but yeah, hopefully that will be one of the silver linings. Staying on the topic for a second, disagreeing agreeably, which is a phrase you mentioned in your book. And it's a phrase I like to talk about all the time with my students in terms of just professionalism and trying to have a civil conversation with someone, even if you disagree with them. And I think we could all benefit from that, particularly on social media. And I, I try to convey to my students that starting an argument with, you're an idiot or you're a moron or that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard is probably not a good way to convince someone to change their mind. So you have somehow perfected the art of courteousness and, and civility on social media. And what is your general advice to people when there is a disagreement in terms of trying to do it agreeably. And it doesn't mean because you're doing it agreeably, you don't believe in the principle that you're not fighting as hard as you otherwise would. It's actually the, the opposite because you believe in it so much, you want to see the change happen. And the best way to make the change happen is by doing it collaboratively. So how have you been able to do it so effectively, particularly when you spent so many of the formative years of your career working with somebody who had a different approach? Several fold. Number one, not only do we need to figure out how to do this on social media, we need to figure out how to do it in the Senate and the House of Representatives and politics in every state and throughout the world. Look, I think disagreement can be healthy. I think disagreement can be productive. I don't think things work as well in business, if you have an echo chamber where everyone's saying, yes, go ahead and disagree. Go ahead and be passionate about your views, even when you disagree with whomever, whether it's a boss, a coworker, 
disagree, but disagree agreeably. And that doesn't mean you can't be passionate and that doesn't mean you can't be forceful, but you're absolutely right. You don't start out with, listen, idiot, or listen, you jerk. You just say, here's my view. And you know what? I respect that you have a different view because let me tell you something. The only way we are going to solve problems as a society, as a world, is if we figure out a way to exchange thoughts and ideas in a reasoned and reasonable manner, and we find a way to listen to one another and learn and compromise, and when we're disagreeing, to do so agreeably. And as to your question regarding Twitter, I talk to people all the time about, go ahead and disagree but do it agreeably. It's something I am, it's just ad nauseum to some people, I'm sure how much I do it. But you know what? In my years now on Twitter, I can count on probably two hands the times someone has expressed disagreement in a rude or offensive manner. And each time I've seen that, I've written back and said, you know what, go ahead and disagree, but you don't need to be mean. And by the way, I know I sound like an elementary school kid when I say, you don't need to be mean. And you know what? With the exception of a couple times, maybe two or three, the person has written back and said, you know what? I'm sorry. You're right. I can disagree with you without being nasty. And then we go on and have a conversation and be direct. Tell people, hey, yell at me, but do it nicely. I I try to use the same philosophy and and it it does work pretty well, telling them with kindness. Last quick point, and this is a big topic, so I don't want to give a short shrift, but I want to make sure I discuss with you. you. You've talked passionately about being a woman in the NFL and and being the the first and still only CEO of a team and that the way you approached it was to not think about yourself as a different gender, as a woman, because it would be counterintuitive for you to expect others to not view you as different because of your gender, but then for you to view yourself as, as different. And I think it's fair to say, if you were in charge of making hiring decisions for the NFL and the world, there'd be more diversity and women and minorities in these positions of power. But unfortunately, you're not. And although there are signs of progress, and you look at Kim Ang and Michelle Roberts and others, the, the record overall still for professional sports leagues, and particularly the NFL, is pretty dismal. And the, the, the race and gender report card that came out last year gives the NFL a C plus for gender and for race and gender. It's the lowest it's ever been since 2004. And even the WNBA that does best is actually losing ground in terms of hiring women to be coaches and general managers. So even if people approach it personally from a gender blind perspective and saying, I, I'm just going to look at the person and their qualifications and their merit, not their gender, their race. How does the league and the leagues overcome the decades of discrimination against women and the structural sexism that is in place? Because there's a lot of talk about, I grew up with the idea that colorblindness was a good thing, but now it's not such a good thing because we have to recognize that there have been centuries of racial discrimination and that if we want to fix that and fix the structural racism, we have to acknowledge race. And you could make the same argument with sexism that in order to fix it, you've got to acknowledge it and not say, I'm not going to think about myself as a woman or allow other people to look at myself as a woman. You're right. There has been tremendous progress. And I'm looking at it through a different prism than your students, given my age and given their age. I started my career in the NFL in the early part of the middle 80s, early to mid 80s. And I was the only woman in that room. 
Now there are some terrific women around the league, Jeannie Bonk with the Chargers, Hannah Gordon with the 49ers. And I note that there's more and I won't list them now because of our time crunch, but there are some terrific women throughout the league. The answer is I, if I had a magic wand, I would make sure that something I hope is the case really is the case. And I would speed it up because even if my hope that it's the case is correct and it is the case, it needs to move faster. And that's what I call business Darwinism. Businesses that don't hire without regard to race, gender, religion, ethnicity, any individuality which has no bearing whatsoever on whether one can do a job, those businesses should fail. Because by definition, they are eliminating from consideration vast quantities of people who could do tremendous good for the business. And businesses which are not diverse and inclusive would fail because they're not diverse and inclusive. So they become echo chambers or they're full of people with the same views or same background. So if you're going to give me that magic wand, I would implement business Darwinism, which I hope exists, but I would speed it the heck up. Thank you. That was terrific. That Fascinating was, topics. That was, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks was, for having me. I appreciate it. And really great topics. And not that I'm surprised that you ask intriguing topics and great questions. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Be well. Thank you all for listening. And thanks to my loyal sponsors, RitVest. Looking for the perfect holiday gift? Look no more. RitVest. And Impact Econ Research. Leading the way in research, impact, and econ. See you next time, Between the Lines. We'll grow and be tough. Now fight with them and just keep sticking it to them.